Hi, this is Megan Ball. And this is Brock Wilbur. And you're listening to Carrying Into the Void, the podcast where we get together, tell each other about a weird or dark story we've heard, and then try to find the silver lining or flip it into something that, while possibly not positive, will at least be productive. How are you today, Brock? Not good. <laughs> I feel like everyone has the answer to this. I feel like asking someone how they are right now is a very loaded question. I mean, it, it has been for, for so long. Uh, it, at least now, like, what have you been up to isn't like, well, I haven't seen the sun in a year. But that's mostly because we're being forced to go back to work. So it's not a great answer either. No, it's really not. I, I think it's important to be honest about things not going well. Um, things are not going well. Mm. But I am handling them better than usual. And I am going to take a little celebration in that. That's good. Had one of my worst days, maybe of the decade, uh, about a week ago. And... Um, the the next day i just didn't feel anything and i know that that could come off as like shock but like i wasn't um wasn't sad and wasn't angry and just sort of went about the motions of the day and thought clearly and was okay and i think it's because the things that i have learned about self-care all kicked in without me having to like actively focus on them uh and i was just like oh okay like uh i'm aware of the things within my control outside of my control we can uh we can work with this sure moving on so i i don't know pretty proud of that amidst everything else and i think that that makes it easier to admit like when things are going very very poorly is like oh they're poor but like i can be honest with somebody and say things are going poorly without them being like worried that something is going to happen to me like no no no, things are bad i will remain a person and i'm fine and i'm here well i'm proud of you for being able to do that thank you for being proud of me i am I think you're doing really well How under the circumstances. I'm, you know what? I'm doing <laughs> as well as anyone can be under the circumstances. I was talking to someone today and I actually feel worse than I did this time last year, which is a very odd thing to say. It's it's not. I, it totally tracks. <laughs> yeah. There was a very nice amount of maybe like three or four weeks in like April and like early May when I felt hope. Then the rest of the summer happened. And now I'm kind of like, ah. So this is how it's going to be. Okay, well, I guess I'm going to lose some money on concert tickets I can't refund now because I bought a lot of them in April and May, very hopefully. And I had really cool plans. I was going to visit people and go traveling and just go back to to stuff. And that ain't happening anytime soon. Well, it's, it's, it makes sense that you would feel worse because we last year we had a problem mm-hmm. and we knew what the solution would be and we were waiting on the solution. Yes. And at the start of this year, the solution arrived and we were like, we are done with that problem, and then we didn't. So, we, yeah, to sort of relapse yeah. into losing concerts and stuff is like, the, the it's the hope that kills you. It right? is. <laughs> it really is. And my office uh, for my day job just announced that we're not going back now until January. And the smart money is on them being like, well, the winter is a thing, so why don't we try to go back in March or April? And that's a solid two years. I mean, I'm not a betting woman, but I would not have guessed in a million years that if you told me, hey, there's going to be a plague and you're going to work from home for two solid years, there's no way I would believe you. Here's the thing that's amazing about it, especially considering the eras that you love so much. I know. At least when we used to have plagues, 
no one could work from home. Yeah, we've so got... I think they probably had a better mental health state. I don't, <laughs> I don't know about that. Than working from the same place where they live all day. I, I hadn't thought about that, but now that tracks. Well, here's the thing: if if this had happened even just ten years before, we wouldn't have been as well equipped to bear as much of this as we have. I feel like the ability to work from home, as tough as that can be sometimes, and how I know I'm very privileged in the fact that I have a a job where I can do that. I have friends of mine who are bartenders and work retail and work in healthcare and stuff who don't have that ability. So I know at the first point, I'm very privileged to be able to do that. But on the second point, if this had happened 10 years ago and we didn't have the Zooms and the VPNs and all that kind of stuff, and we, the choice was either to go to work every day or economic collapse and death, I think we would have chosen to go into work every day and it would have been even worse. So I think it's kind of a mixed blessing, you know, a double-edged sword as things go. As an inverse of what you're proposing, I'm trying to imagine doing my job via a flip phone. Yeah, exactly. How addicted I am to doing my work and how much I would have really tried to type it out uh, on a numeric keypad to get posts up. (laughs) Yeah, imagine having to do that shit on like a Blackberry. (laughs) You know, pulling out your your Nokia sidekick (laughs) from like 2001. I know that Will, our wonderful editor, tends to cut down our intros that get a little too bleak. And I, I kind of like this one uh, as it is because it's uh, it's truthful. And, and a thing that I love about the show Ted Lasso is that the character Ted Lasso is never concerned about wins or losses. And that, that confuses everyone. And almost across the board... It is a show about everyone taking losses, but it is about finding the positivity in that. And I think that that is the same thesis as our show. A lot of TV and movies sets you up to think that, like, even the smallest problem, you have to do giant speeches and watch your life explode and and everything is the, the biggest thing to ever happen. And it is nice to remember that sometimes you can just look at the worst possible thing and go, yeah, I guess that's happening. What can I do to be happy today? Uh, and uh, and it turns out you can often find that if if you give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, but also I feel like it's important to recognize the fact that it's okay to not be okay, and it's okay to feel bleak and stuff like that. I feel like there's also now I have not watched Ted Lasso, but I know that there is also kind of a a backlash about like activity. So I feel like it's also good to acknowledge when you're not doing okay. And how okay that can be. I will let you know now that that backlash uh, was immediately corrected by the writing in the show. They just hadn't seen all the episodes of the season yet. It it gets there and it talks about it constantly. No, I'm not saying anything bad about Ted Lasso. And I'm not sure what kind of discourse you're talking about. Because I'm very disconnected <laughs> from some some media discourse. But I just know that there there is an idea of like toxic positivity just as a general idea. Going along with the idea of like toxic self-care. So I feel sure. like it's okay to sit with how bleak things are sometimes. Sometimes you need to kind of to know it and 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 sit in it for a minute to to kind of move on. You know, it's okay to not have to gloss over something. It's okay to feel bad. When we started the show, Jordan and I had a long conversation about toxic positivity because we were like, okay, it's a it's a show about finding the hope and the goodness and things and there isn't hope and goodness in everything, but there is a path forward that is safe Mm -hmm. and good for people. And I I like to think that the show has always, or at least mostly, struck that correctly. It's what I hope to be in the world. (laughs) It's a fine line, and I definitely think we we 
wobble across it. We do our best. And I think that's all you can hope for right now is just do your best. Sometimes your best some days is getting out of bed. And that's awesome. Sometimes your best is doing really well and having an awesome day. That's also good. You know, I feel like your best can be multiple types of best. Megan, thank you for showing up tonight and uh, wobbling with me. Aww. I always appreciate it. Aww. <laughs> Brock, thank you for showing up tonight. I appreciate you. What's your story for this week? I wanted to talk to you about the dancing sickness of 1518 because I was going to really lead into this tonight. Did you say 1518 or 1618? 1518. Which also doesn't matter because I have no idea the difference between those years. Everything for like a thousand years of human existence is basically the same in my head. <laughs> it's solidly Middle Ages. Um, it's not like the Dark Ages. That's more like 10 and 1100. So this is, you know, we're, we're getting to, you know, enlightenment and, and knowledge and stuff. But despite that, there was a dancing sickness or a dancing epidemic in 1518. They called it dancing mania. And it occurred in Strasbourg in Alsace, which is in modern day France. And it went for a fairly long amount of time. It was from July to September of 1518. And they said between 50 and 400 people took to dancing for days and weeks on end. Historical documents, including physician notes, cathedral sermons, and chronicles of the local and regional area, have notes that say that it's clear that people danced, and they danced for a long time, but no one knows exactly why. And in my head, this just looks like the safety dance music video. And I also don't know why. <laughs> I don't know if, if everyone remembers that music video. Go put it on YouTube. It is a delight. Yeah, if you haven't, like, stop now and just go enjoy that. You don't need it for this, but you need it in your life. Yeah, yeah. Pause us for a minute. We'll be here when you get back. So historical sources agree that this was an outbreak. They seem to point to the fact that there was a single woman who started dancing, and a group of mostly young women joined in. And the dancing did not seem to die down on its own. It lasted for such a long time that it attracted the attention of the local magistrate and the regional bishop, who both came to look and see what was going on. And a bunch of uh, doctors also came in, and they had to physically pull these people down to the ground, tie them up, and bring them to a local hospital because they could not stop dancing. Events like this, or similar to this, have also happened in the medieval ages, including in the 11th century in Saxony is part of England and there are also parts of it that happened in what is now known as Germany and uh, Austria um, so it's mostly that kind of European area that we're talking about no one knows exactly why a lot of people think that it's the cause of I mean at the time the writings all seem to say that it was maybe demonic possession you know divine judgment the interceding hand of God on the sinful or whatever in the 15th century in Italy, a woman was bitten by a tarantula, and the venom made her dance convulsively. Perfect. Yes. Do the spider dance. Oh my god. Spider yep. dance me. Yep. That, I, that could have been its own segment. Like, just spider dance. Oh my god. I love this so much. I know. So there could be the fact that it might have been from an animal bite of some kind. Controversy exists over when, whether people actually died dancing. There are pop culture references when this stuff is kind of brought up that, you know, people dance to death. Right. And there are folk tales and, you know, like grim fairy tales about people who um, danced during the dancing plague to death. There's no actual, like, sources saying that people actually died. There are um, 
secondhand accounts that are rather far removed saying that like this uh, dancing sickness killed 15 people, but there's no first-hand accounts that said that anyone actually passed away. Look, it's not that big of a reach because how many people died at Studio 54 coked up and dancing and their heart exploded? Like, come on. Yeah, exactly. The theories that people have about why this actually happened was that it might have been food poisoning from a fungus related to LSD, which is commonly found on improperly stored bread grain. You know, this did happen in the middle of the summer, so it was a warmer, more humid type of atmosphere. So it could have been a mold or a fungus. There could have been a psychogenic movement disorder, which is kind of a mass hysteria or mass uh, illness, which involves many individuals suddenly exhibiting the same bizarre behavior. And it spreads in kind of an epidemic pattern, which has been seen in different groups throughout history. And some historians speculate that this was a stress-induced psychosis which is also a fabulous phrase. That feels very on brand for right now. Like, hey, what I know. if everyone was very, yes. very stressed? <laughs> yeah, well, it's because at the time there was a lot of bad harvests, starvation, disease. And since people tended to be superstitious, it also made people very afraid. So again, it could have been a situation where it, it just affected your brain so much that that's kind of the, the way it came out. All, all told, in this type of area in the medieval ages, there were seven other cases of dancing sicknesses, but this one is the longest. This went on for months. And it was also called the St. Vitus Dance, which is a fantastic Bauhaus song. So, for your reference, if you are ever listening to Bauhaus and you hear that, they're talking about this dancing sickness. So yeah, I'd love to hear if science has figured this out. From what I saw, they haven't, and it's just one of those weird medieval things. The last known case of dancing sickness was all the way back in, like, the 1620s. So it's not something that modern history has touched in a really long time. Huh. So it's weird to see that it happened so frequently and then stopped very quickly and has not reoccurred. What's your carrying into the void? My carrying into the void today is you can dance if you want to. <laughs> you can leave your friends behind. <laughs> Although we probably shouldn't. In fact, bring your friends with us. The more the merrier here. It's hard to remember the social joys we once had, even though there are those of us who were kind of hermits even before the world shut down. Think fondly back on mosh pits and dance parties, on quiet gatherings with friends, coffee dates and drinks after work. It's easy to feel isolated right now. The world is still on fire after all. Hopefully we'll be dancing together again soon. Until then, nothing's stopping you from having a one-person dance party to yourself. It'll cure what ails you. Yes. 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 <laughs> I'm so glad you immediately picked up what I was yes. doing there. <laughs> All I could think of was the safety dance when I was when I was researching this. It wouldn't get out of my head for a solid like two days, so it just had to happen. Good. What do you have to bring to me today? Well, today we're going to talk about Wendigo psychosis. We're both leaning into the psychosises. This is good. Is it good, Megan? I think it reflects something inside of us. <laughs> <laughs> and I have no judgment on what that is. It could be good or bad, but it just is. Please regale me with the Wendigo psychosis. Um, so Wendigo psychosis. Uh, this is a thing. Actually, uh, we, we've covered Wendigos on the show before. Uh, and also, as every time, I must insist that you watch the 1999 film Ravenous about a Wendigo situation back in the olden days. Uh, of Pioneers, uh, and the soundtrack is by Damon 
from Blur, and it doesn't make any sense for a time period piece. It's one of my favorite things of all time. So Wendigo Psychosis, I, I heard about from friends because it became sort of a shorthand that some of them use for, you know, when you see that Twitter take of the day that somebody has such brain worms, especially about like something regarding an offense that they've taken, like an identity thing that no one in the world would ever, ever bring up. Uh, like when, when somebody's maybe even deliberately trolling by creating something that they're like, actually, this is offensive and your silence on, on horses is deafening. <laughs> Uh, they refer to it internally as as Wendigo psychosis. And I was like, what is all that? Uh, which it's incredible that I'd not seen it before because it's quite literally mentioned at the top of the Wendigo Wiki page, uh, a place where I've spent some time over the years. So Wendigo psychosis is this disease that some people think is real and a lot of people think is not. And what it is is a mental illness where you have a deep craving for human flesh as food. It is the idea that inside of you, there is a voice that says you are a Wendigo and you should, you should go out, find, kill, and eat people. And there are a number of people over the years who have done a cannibalism or tried to do a cannibalism and have brought up oh dear. this thing as, as part of it to the point where it is actually something that can almost count as a legal defense at this point. Like, it's like, okay, what what is there? So it's a thing that is recognized by the medical community insofar as they're like, uh, that that's sort of our catch-all term for bullshit. Like, it's it's a thing that we, we can say, like, eh, but they can't totally rule it out because it's sometimes impossible to rule out, like, a mental illness, obviously. Like, who knows? You can't live inside of somebody's head. No one's no one's living in the psychonauts world. Anyway, <laughs> that this is sort of a thing that like it started much as the Wendigo story did within sort of Canada and and native populations, and then like like any good thing, it was basically co opted by white people, <laughs> and and like it's it's white people that are mostly like I don't know, I think I've just become a Wendigo. It's it's part of who I am, uh, and and it's actually uh, it's less about in most cases, actually killing and eating somebody, it's more about a fear that you will. It is the fear that you are becoming basically a werewolf. You're like, I, oh, fuck, I know, I'm turning into a werewolf. That's what's happening. And and then you live in paranoia of that, which that seems a lot more likely as a, as a thing that could be real than being cursed to turn into a Wendigo. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, um, it's a really fascinating thing. Um, and like, yeah, I do not want to come out and say that a, a thing does not exist. But when most of the medical community is like, that's kind of our joke. I feel like we can use it as as at least partially a joke. But it is a fascinating thing that like enough people experience it, that there is a name and that it has existed actually for hundreds of years. It just keeps spreading. And I wonder how much Twitter has to do with that. It, it feels like I'm discussing just brain worms as an idea. Like, this is brain worms. There are two wolves inside of you and one is a Wendigo. E e oh. <laughs> I'm so mad at you. I'm going to do my carrying into the void and I think we're done with this episode. That's how mad I am with you. No. Here's my caring. You think you've got it. That voice inside that tells you what you are. You probably do. You have a voice. We all have a voice inside. Most of us, let's admit, have a full chorus. 
But that voice is only that, a voice. It is an outside influence with no real influence. I mean, unless you hand over the reins. We, here, on the show, certainly are not the ones to say that you can always deprive a voice of its power, obviously. We certainly know how far this can go, and we know what voices have held sway over us for years and what they have led us to do. But the voice that you fear the most, the one that you're worried might just take the reins by sheer force someday, it can speak. But you can speak to it, too. You can put it in its place. You can tell it how it has drifted from a place of influence. You can always let that voice know in a polite yet professional conversation that it may fuck off into the sun. You're always going to have those voices inside. Never forget that you have a voice, too. No chorus can drown out a god. Oh, that's incredible. Good job. What's your lifting up for the week? Is it okay to boost myself? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, um, I've started writing a column at Tour Nightfire called Horror is Metal, where I talk about a band or a musical genre or something like that and how it relates to the genre of horror. So it's my two favorite things all in one. And the editor, her name is Emily, is the nicest woman who came to me and said, hey, we want to write a music column. How do you feel about that? And I said, yes, please. Thank you. So the first column was about Black Sabbath. The second column was about the Misfits. And the third column is going to be about the scariest thing of all, which is the Backstreet Boys. And I hope that everyone would maybe go over, take a look, see if you like it. It's just a fun thing that I get to do once a month where I sit down and talk about how horror influences music and how music influences horror. And I'm very excited about it. I'm very, very proud of it. And I hope you'll go check it out. It's at Tour Night Fire. It's under my name, Megan Ball. So if you just search for that, you'll find it. And it's called Horror is Metal. That's fantastic. I'm going to lift up uh, somebody that I've lifted up on the show before. Chris Laura's child, uh, who used to go under the name Chris Ligman, uh, writer on Cozy Grove, wrote You Are Jeff Bezos, uh, my favorite text game of all time. Oh, that game's incredible. Exactly. They have a Patreon uh, where they put up games uh, that they make that you can support. And Joyce Carol Oates did a tweet last week that was basically like, no one can have fun at Halloween because some people have recently lost people. Um, and like, it, that's not fun for them. And just just a horrific take about how we shouldn't put skeletons in our yards or whatever. Just goddamn it, Joyce. Um, and Chris... <laughs> was so goddamn angry about it that they had a twine game that they'd made about their father who had recently passed away, who was not the best dude. There are a, a number of content warnings at the start of this game, but they sort of made it for themselves. They were never going to share it with the public. And this Joyce Carol Oates tweet caused them to finish the game and put it up. And if you're a Patreon backer, which you can be for just a couple of bucks uh, per month, uh, you can have access to this game about their relationship with their dad and at about having a lot of different emotions with that, including the ones that Joyce Carol Oates says that you can't have. Uh, and in the bottom corner of the game, because it's on Itch.io, the description of the game that it appears on screen the entire time you're playing it just says, fuck Joyce Carol Oates. And I'm just... <laughs> there are so many times within the game that I'm like, oh, this is such serious subject matter. And, and other times where I'm like, wow, I, I, I just love what I'm seeing. But no matter what's happening, 
fuck Joyce Carol Oates exists on the screen. And I, the, the, the sheer anger towards a single tweet to go out and make art on this scale is something that I have to respect forever. So look up Chris, uh, on Patreon. Uh, if you can't find a link, DM me and I'll send it to you. Uh, absolutely support what they're doing. Megan, why don't you take us out? Okay. Well, thank you very much for listening. And remember, keep your hearts dark and true and your teeth sharp and many. And we'll see you next time in the void. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. Bye.